Welcome to the Promo Cares Radio Podcast, where we share the stories about the good being done in the promotional products industry. From philanthropic efforts to cause marketing to giving programs, these are the people who are inspiring others to improve the world through promo. To learn more about Promo Cares, visit promocares.org. Now, on with today's show. And welcome to another edition of the Promo Cares Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Petrie, and I have an interesting guest today, or maybe I guess it's up to you to decide if it's interesting, because the guest today is me. That's right. You are stuck with just me today on the Promo Cares podcast, and sometimes that happens when schedules don't quite match up where we could have a regular guest. So I'm going to try to make this as interesting as possible, and I thought it would be a really good opportunity, and I spoke with my good friend Roger Burnett, who is uh, the founder and uh, co-president of Promo Cares. I talked to him about telling this story, and he was uh, gracious enough to say, you know what, I think that'll make a good podcast topic. But again, that's going to be kind of up to you guys to decide. Uh, It's a little different for me. I'm usually broadcasting with somebody else, and it's very different to have your own one-man radio show. So hopefully... Uh, we'll get through this both uh, to unscathed, unscathed, and uh, hopefully we'll learn a little something on the on the backside. So, I I talk a lot about uh, I do a lot of education sessions in the industry, and I talk a lot about the value and po- power of promotional products. But sometimes it's difficult to really assign a value to it, whether it's monetary or something else. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of the term promotional products, they think in terms of, you know, frivolous handouts or campaign buttons or trade show giveaways or swag stuff we all get. And and promotional products are all those things. But I think especially those of us in the promotional products industry realize that they're so much more. And I can tell you that from experience if you have met me or know me, uh, probably know I don't wear a lot of jewelry. It's just not a uh, thing for me. I'm just not a big jewelry guy. I always wear a watch and wear my wedding ring, of course. But on my right wrist, I wear a wristband. And as a 49-year-old male, I probably should have moved on from wearing a silicone wristband. But I do wear one, and it's uh, says the American Heart Association on it, and I wanted to tell the reason why. I mean, it's a simple $1 promotional product that we've seen a million times, and probably the most famous example is the uh, Livestrong campaign when Lance Armstrong uh, had cancer. But I wear this one for the American Heart Association for one reason and one reason only. About almost three years ago now, I remember the date, very, very clearly. It was August the 5th, uh, sorry, August the 6th of 2016. My wife, uh, who I've been, we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary earlier this week. My wife uh, is a speech language pathologist in the school districts here in uh, Middle Tennessee. And so, like a lot of people who work in the school district, really treasures her summers off and really enjoys that time away. And anybody who works in the education system knows that first week back at school is is kind of a grind. And that week she had gone back to uh, school, gotten her room ready, gotten her case files updated and ready to go for the year. And actually it was a Friday, and that Friday – 
uh, was also the first day of school. It was a half a day for um, our kids who at the time were uh, 13. They're 16 now, um, but they were 13, so it was a half a day for them. And I'll never forget it. We were in our house, and Drew was going to stay home. Then we have 16-year-old twin boys. And Drew was planning on staying home that night and just hanging out, and that's very much Drew's personality, whereas Mitch wanted to go to the Williamson County Fair, which is the local fair here. Uh, always a good time. And so Mitch and I had negotiated a time when he would come home from the fair, and he had uh, his friend's mom pick him up and take him to the fair. And we had planned that I was going to go to the fair later on that night just to be present in case something happened. I don't know what was going to happen, but any of you parents know that you, sometimes you just feel better being in proximity to your child when they're doing something uh, that's new. And going to the, the fair by himself was a new experience for us. So we had negotiated that. And he left around 6.30, and I was planning on getting to the fair around uh, right around 8.30 or so. And so Drew and, and Sandy, my wife, were watching television in, in the family room, and I was watching something else in another room. And I suddenly heard my son Drew say, Dad, Dad. And I could hear in his voice something wasn't right. It wasn't a normal call out. He wasn't calling for me to come watch something or see what he was doing. He was genuinely concerned. And so I got up and I ran into the the family room where he and, and Sandy were watching television to find Sandy slumped in a chair um, and not responsive and turning blue. She was struggling to breathe. Her, uh, I would say her breathing was shallow and it was labored. I immediately kind of looked around and, and this is where I can thank uh, the first time I can thank the American Heart Association because I learned CPR as a young lad in uh, Texas as a lifeguard. And, you know, in conjunction with the American Red Cross and, and uh, the American Heart Association teaches so many people how to use CPR. I saw that there was a plate on the table next to her, so I immediately thought she must be choking. And I reached two fingers into her mouth in in kind of swirled around and I didn't find any food and uh, this is actually more difficult for me to do than I thought so bear with me as I kind of keep my emotions in check so I, I pulled her off the chair and I pointed to Drew and I said I need you to call 911 and he was a little upset obviously and so I said immediately, "Go! I'm going to call 911. You open the front door and wait for them. Flag them down. In my experience in that type of a situation, people need something to do. At that point, I started giving Sandy CPR. And it's not something you're ever really prepared to do is your spouse of 22 years laying there, 22 years at the time, you're mentally not prepared to administer um, hope, what you hope is a life-saving uh, skill. As I started the CPR, the 911 operator answered, and I, um, 
you know, explained that uh, as calmly as I could. I explained that, you know, my wife wasn't breathing. I think she's having a heart attack because that's what I thought at the time. And I um, said I was administering CPR already. And she was said, great, you know, she verified the address and said uh, ambulance is on her way. And I remember right as she said that, uh, you know, help was on the way, that her breathing stopped. And at that point, Drew had come in to see what was going on. And he could see me doing chest compressions on her. And, uh, you know, it's one of those moments where everything's happening so fast, yet it slows down at the same time. And so you remember every vivid little detail. Like I remember our dog who, who we had to put down recently. I remember Bailey, our little beagle mutt, kind of really kind of standing or sitting at attention, just not sure what was happening. She knew I wasn't attacking Sandy, but she knew something was wrong. I continued giving chest compressions. Um, the 911 operator instructed me not to give mouth-to-mouth, which is what I was taught as CPR as, as, a, as a child. So I just continued doing chest compressions. I later find out I gave chest compressions to her for six and a half minutes. And that may not sound like a lot of time, but I can tell you it is. So the paramedics came in and... Um, asked me to continue because I guess I was doing a good enough job as they set up. And at that point, when they asked me to stop, I saw them cutting her clothes off because one person was cutting her clothes off and another paramedic was you getting paddles ready. And I knew they were going to try to shock her heart. Um, her heart had stopped what we found out later. Um, they, they anticipate her heart was stopped for about four to four and a half minutes, maybe even five. So I asked Drew to go outside because I knew he didn't want to see that. I didn't want him to see that. Hell, nobody wants to see that. And I had my back turned, and I heard the shock, and I figured that was it. And I turned around and saw saw them shock her again because they didn't get a heartbeat back. At that second shock, they did get a heartbeat back, and um, over the course of the next 10 or 15 minutes, stabilized her to the point where we could put her in the ambulance and transport her to uh, Vanderbilt uh, Hospital here in Nashville, to a main trauma hospital in the, actually in the region. So at this point, I'm still thinking she had a heart attack. It's the most logical explanation. But she hadn't gained, regained consciousness. And as I was in the ambulance, I had found, asked one of our friends to pick Mitch up. I had called Mitch explained what what was going on to the best of my knowledge that, you know, I didn't know it was going on exactly, but, you know, mom mom needed help. We were getting her the help she needed, and we were on our way to the hospital. And um, we got to the hospital, and they brought her, you know, you go through the emergency room entrance, and they, they sat me down and said, we'll be back in a half hour. And gosh darn it, it was exactly 30 minutes on the dot. Uh, during which time I called her parents, uh, tried to get a hold of my parents, um, and and I told her parents, you know, I think I think you need to come, because I didn't I didn't know. And I'll never forget, the nurse and the doctor came in, and her, her nurse came up and said, you know, please follow me. And they walked me to a room, and it wasn't a room she was in. It was this empty, antiseptic 
almost felt like a government issue room out of the 1970s with beige Naugahyde furniture and just thoughtless paintings on the wall. And I thought, this is where they're going to tell me that Sandy's dead. I'll never, I'll never forget that. Thankfully, they didn't. They told her that, uh, told me that they had her stabilized, but she was not, had not regained consciousness, and that they were going to take her up to the uh, cardiac intensive care unit, um, which they did. And I accompanied her up there. And over the course of the next couple hours, you just wait. And um, finally, some doctors came. I had some friends come and bring me backpack and a couple other things and just sit with me. And, and they came and told me uh, that they had anticipated seeing a ton of blockage and they were going to put a stint in, right? They didn't find any blockage. Um, so there was no reason to put a stint in. What they told me was her what's called ejection fraction, which is the percentage of blood that your heart pumps every time it beats. So blood goes into your heart, your heart pumps, and then X percent comes out. An average person's ejection fraction is 55%. Hers was eight. And so essentially her heart had failed um, and failed catastrophically. And so they told me that what they were going to do is put her in a hypothermic coma Um, which meant they were going to lower her body temperature to about 88, 89 degrees. Um, And it would take them about two hours to set that up. And then they would slowly, they would do that for about 24 to 48 hours and then slowly bring her out of it to try to, you know, get her to regain consciousness. And I'll never forget this. You know, one of the things you, (laughs) you don't realize is, you know, when you're at a teaching hospital, which Vanderbilt is and so there were two older doctors and then one young one. Of course, he looked like he was 15 and straight out of Doogie Howser Central Casting. And I said, why, why would you put her, why would you lower her body temperature? And I'll never, ever forget it. This young kid said, well, we do, and he just said it so matter of fact, well, we do that to preserve whatever brain function might be left. And that's when I finally lost my shit and started crying bawling. And as I started just really losing it, I just remember this doctor, not the young one who said accurately, certainly, but not very, not with a lot of heart, not with a lot of bedside manner, but the other doctor kind of shot him a look and he just held me. I'll never forget that moment. The importance of human touch and a hug in that moment meant everything to me. Let me try to accelerate this a little bit. I'm kind of belaboring this and not really talking about the point I wanted to. So this might be the most failed Promo Cares podcast in the history of the Promo Cares podcast. So long story short, they lowered her body temperature um, for a couple days. And then on Sunday, they slowly uh, brought her out of it. And she was able to come out of her coma. And slowly but surely, she became her again. And um, ended up needing surgery to implant uh, what is called an ICD, which is a combination pacemaker and uh, defibrillator. So if something like that event happens again, uh, it would shock her heart to, to you know, get the rhythm where it needs to be. And 
you go through the end of it and you feel like things are getting better. And then you start to get scary statistics. And a couple that stuck with me, it's one of the you know things that I know so well, I could recite it at 3.22 in the morning if you woke me up from a cold sleep. 93% of people who suffer a cardiac arrest, which means your heart stops. It's not the same as a heart attack. Um, 93% of people who suffer a cardiac arrest outside a hospital setting die. So right off the bat, she had a 7% chance of survival. And then of the 7% that do survive, close to 80% of them have severe physical or neurological disabilities. So the fact that Sandy doesn't have any physical disabilities, she doesn't have any severe neurological disabilities, is truly a miracle. And that's all thanks to the American Heart Association. Without the research that they have done over the years, I'd be a widower. Without the research and energy and time and money that they've put into creating interventions to help people who have suffered a traumatic heart incident recover, she might be alive, but she might be a vegetable. She might be brain dead or all manner of things I don't like to think about. But the fact is that it's true. And so we felt very compelled to give back to our community. And about a month and a half after the event, um, actually it wasn't a month and a half, so when we started talking about it, um, she was actually, one of, the, one of the interesting things is she was actually chosen as um, one of the American Heart Association's survivor stories. So we, we filmed a video and for the uh, National American Heart Association. And then uh, that following January, we put on for our neighborhood uh, a CPR class with the Franklin, Tennessee, in conjunction with the Franklin, Tennessee Fire Department. And we had 130 people turn out. 130 people gave up their Saturday to try to learn a life-saving skill that they may never need. And so I wear this bracelet as a reminder of the good work and the power of, of good work can do. I attended LEAD um, a couple weeks ago, which is during Promotional Products Work Week, Legislative Education and Action Day. And during the meetings, like I said, I, I, would st I, I did it with my good friend Steve Roan from Snugs. And we would start out the meetings with a very simple question to whether it was a staffer or a congressperson or a senator. What do you think of when you think of promotional products? And almost to a person, it was, well, giveaways and campaign buttons and things you get at trade shows. And like I said at the top of this, it is that. And I nodded and I'd smile. And I said, well, I think, you know, promotional products can change lives. And I told a very abbreviated story of what I just kind of rambled through on here. And you could see their demeanor change. The power of our medium 
to move people to action, whether it's to buy something in a true sense of the word, which is what we do a lot of times, whether it's brand awareness, whether it's creating a donation driving campaign, whether it's just simple awareness, whatever it is, I think sometimes we forget that our industry, the vehicle we use to move people to action is the most effective commercial marketing vehicle on the planet. And I sincerely, sincerely, sincerely believe that. So like I said, 120 or 130 people attended our CPR class in Franklin. And I I do still wear the silicone wristband. And people will ask, well, why do you wear that? And I tell a brief version of the story. And I know quite a few people who've taken CPR classes as a result of just that conversation. And I think the proudest I am is that I know two people have actually used CPR in a crisis setting and they've used it successfully. You want to talk about the power of promotional products? You know, do promotional products save lives? You're damn right they do. And how does this tie in with promo cares? I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. I have no clue. Other than that, I know individually and as organizations, when we use our medium to change behavior, to create change at a local level, to educate people, it's truly, truly a marvelous thing. I hope that this was valuable. I don't know if it was or not. I, I didn't plan on, on doing this until today. Um, it's kind of, if anybody knows me, you know that uh, I'm a big believer with when it comes to content marketing. The biggest thing you have is consistency. And this has got to be done every other Friday, regardless of what's going on. And so I've had this podcast, this solo podcast in my back pocket for months uh, kind of hoping I'd never have to do it, quite frankly. So I hope um, I hope that I've done Roger proud. I hope that whoever listens to this, I hope you realize that you know our industry is so powerful and so amazing in the things we can do to create change and good in the world um, is really almost impossible to measure. So. I think that'll probably put a little bow on this episode of the Promo Cares podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Promo Cares and, and the mission, and, and I hope you are, please go ahead and visit promocares.org. Really good people running that organization and really good people who want to change the world. And I can tell you from experience, a promo, promotional product does change the world. I'd feel naked if I didn't have that black wristband with the red lettering that says American Heart Association on it. I would just feel lost. It's just part of who I am now. It's a promotional product I wear every day. It's a promotional product that's near and dear to me and my family. And it's a promotional product that has created positive change in others. And it cost me a dollar. It cost me a dollar to have conversations with people and share stories, my story in particular, share stories that impact the lives of others. 
So I want to thank you very much for listening. Uh, sorry if this rambled a little bit. It's what happens when you don't have a quality co-host like a Kirby Hossaman to kind of keep you in your lane. Uh, it's every time I do something like this, it reminds me how wonderful Kirby is to deal and put up with me. But anyway, I'm, I'm now rambling and babbling. So thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the Promo Cares Podcast.